So hello everybody, coming back from the walking meditation and um, so this morning I like to speak a little bit about you know different skillful means we can use in order to um, you know empower our process of inquiry and you know as we spoke about yesterday you know in a nutshell we can say what we are doing is with the practices you know trying to clear away ignorance or clearing away the net of delusion we tend to project onto our experience and yesterday we spoke about that in the form of the four vipalasa which is one way you know how this net of delusion can be described and I'm just going to mention it once more as a little reminder. So I was saying about, you know, on the first foundation of mindfulness, seeing, this is body, seeing what is not beautiful as beautiful. Meaning, you know, looking under the surface of appearance and not as a judgment, but rather as a way of balancing out. And in that way, you know, attachment can be loosened. And then on the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, our feeling tone, seeing what is painful as pleasant. For example, you know, letting go of different um, attachments in terms of needing this and needing that. That's actually considered, you know, in the world of consumerism, that's considered dukkha. But in the world of uh, meditation and wisdom and compassion, it's considered sukha. It's considered a power, you know, to be less dependent on things. And then on the third foundation of mindfulness, which is chitta or mind states, moods of the mind, seeing what is impermanent as permanent. You know, really getting bogged down in what's going on in our mind and identifying with it. But then if we start looking at it, according to the Buddha's teaching, we see, oh, all of those mind states, they are like clouds in the sky. They come and go. They are impermanent. And then on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is dhammas or principles, laws of nature, seeing what is without a self as a self, which means, you know, experiencing ourselves, others and phenomena around us as separate entities, as separate things. And through the practice of looking deeply, it starts to dawn on us, no, I am a process and Venom Deepa is a process and everything else around us, even this table, these chairs, they are all processes. So that's the four fundamental insights into reality, you know, which through repetition, those insights into reality slowly but surely wash away the craving to our views, wash away the craving to our conditioning and opening the mind further and further. So that's what we are doing in the practice and how we are doing is, is by paying attention to our experience in the four foundations of mindfulness by paying attention to our experience in a different way than usual because usually we pay attention to our experience in terms of good and bad, 
wanting and not wanting or just not being able to make a decision. And the teaching of the Buddha encourages us to look in a completely different way, to pay attention to features of experience which, if we are not reminded, we wouldn't really start it. But once, you know, we get a little inroad into that way of looking, we start to see the power of it. And it usually starts by calmly observing change. As simple as that. And when Abdhamadipa was mentioning that yesterday, there is a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Velama Sutta, right? Mm -hmm. Where the Buddha speaks about, you know, the different ways of uh, practicing in terms of generosity and other practices. And the top practice is, you know, even a finger snap of time reflecting on impermanence is considered the, the top practice of all practices so not to be underestimated and the second highest one is um, metta meditation mm -hmm. which we were doing today already so those two practices you know if there is nothing else you are doing the warm practice of metta meditation and the cool practice of looking at impermanence mm -hmm. you are covering everything and then, you know, burning the candle from both ends, you know, slowly but surely, ignorance is like burnt away or melted away, you know, melted away through the metta practice and kind of cut away through the impermanence uh, practice. And then slowly but surely, you know, our minds become bigger and bigger. And there's this beautiful sutta, which is called a lump of salt, which I mentioned yesterday, I think, you know, if you are dropping a lump of salt into a small cup, the water becomes very bitter. But if you are dropping a lump of salt into a big body of water, you might not be able to taste it at all. And that's what a big mind can afford us. You know, a big mind, we can see things as they are. We can see them in perspective and there is no big upheaval going on. And even if upheaval comes, it's also held within that mind. So that's, you know, that's really what we are after in the practice. And, uh, you know, as I said it uh, just a moment ago, you know, if we are having a, a very small mind and we are dropping something in, it has big repercussions. And yesterday we were mentioning the five subjects of frequent recollection yesterday evening and you know th that can be compared to a lump of salt you know in the beginning if you drop it into the mind which is not yet trained and used to this way of thinking it brings up a lot of pain a lot of resistance and there's a lot of repercussions you know going through the mind in terms of oh my god fear doubt disgust even you know and turning away anger those, you know, five recollections which our culture is not prepared to look at. We have to voluntarily take that on. And we as monastics, you know, we are instructed to, on a daily basis, consider those. I am of the nature to age. I am of the nature to sicken. I am of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, 
will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And I am the heir of my karma. I am the heir of my actions by body, speech and mind. So those five uh, subjects of frequent recollection, they are really bitter medicine. But then, you know, through on a daily basis or through frequently reflecting in that way, it actually heals us. It heals us in terms of it familiarizes us with the human condition. And then, you know, there is a sense of equanimity and a sense of ease which starts to dawn on us. Once we have allowed ourselves, you know, to be rattled by that long enough so that we start to take those things like old age, sickness and death, taking it less personal because it's not about my fault, you know, that I'm getting old and looking kind of quite different than I looked even 10 years ago. And uh, it's not because I haven't been buying the right stuff, the right face creams and the right faceliftings and the right exercises and all of that. That's not why I'm looking like that. It's just because I'm born and and when I'm born, I'm also with age and I'll get sick and one day I'm going to die. And it's not my fault. This is just part and parcel of the human package deal, you know, which we all have. We all, all find ourselves together in that. And no one whatsoever is exempt from that fate. And once we have, you know, reconsidered that again and again, there's a sense of equanimity starts to emerge, you know, in a very mysterious way, really. There's nothing we have to do. It's just like not looking away, just turning towards it again and again, you know, taking that medicine, taking it, taking it. It opens the mind, you know, it, it kind of eradicates certain kind of patterns in the mind and then you know we can still be sad or still you know grieve the loss of a loved one or if we have you know difficult experience with our health or you know losing certain capacities when we get older physical but still at the same time we know it's not because there's anything going wrong. That's just the way it is. And I think it's a very powerful um, reflection, these five subjects. And I'm always, you know, very happy if I'm able to share that with others because, you know, I can see first people like, oh my God, I mean, I'm, I'm having, I didn't come to the weekend retreat, you know, to be reminded of those things. But then, you know, if you don't turn away and if you let it, sink in you have you know we have given you a real treasure to take with you and uh, we've also provided on the website uh, a sutta which is called the simile of the mountain which speaks about those same subjects in a, in a bit of a different way and i just like to read a few passages from it because it, it's just like a confirmation that, yes, <coughs> this is the way to go. Because there's no escape. So that sutta was spoken in Savadi by the Buddha to King 
Vasenadi of Kosala, who was a powerful king and who came to see the Buddha from time to time. And so the Buddha says to him, What do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable man were to come from the east. He'd approach you and say, Please, sir, you should know this. I come from the east. There I saw a huge mountain that reached the clouds, and it was coming this way, crushing all creatures. So then, great king, do what you must. And then, you know, it's repeated. A second man is coming from the west, and one comes from the north, and one comes from the south. Please, sir, you should know this. I come from the south. There I saw a huge mountain that reached the clouds, and it was coming this way, crushing all creatures. So then, great king, do what you must. And then the Buddha says, should, should such a dire threat arise, a terrible loss of human life, when human birth is so rare, what would you do, great king? And then the king answers, Sir, what could I do but practice the teachings, practice morality, doing skillful and good actions? And the Buddha says, I tell you, great king, I announce to you, old age and death are advancing upon us. Since old age and death are advancing upon us, what would you do? Sir, what can I do but practice the teachings, practice morality, morality, doing skillful and good actions. And then the Buddha answers, that is so true, great king, that is so true. When old age and death are advancing, what can you do but practice the teachings, practice morality, doing skillful and good actions? That is what the Buddha said. So you notice this great mountain reaching up to the clouds. That's the truth of impermanence, which, you know, for us as human beings, mostly comes to us, you know, as old age, sickness and death. And, you know, different cultures over history have, you know, developed different strategies to, to make peace with that. Some, you know, have tried to just completely deny it, like our consumerist, capitalist, culture you know which is not very happy to look at those things and other cultures you know more um, kind of uh, cultures which are more connected you know with nature they have much more capacity to make space for those things you know for example in uh, I think in Mexico people go you know on the day of the death they go to the, the graves of their family and they have a picnic there and they enjoy, you know, they connect. They are not afraid because they have taken in the bitter medicine, you know, because they know there is no way around it. And, you know, in other cultures as well, you know, where, where death is much more allowed, like in India, when I was in pilgrimage in India, I mean, seen so many corpses, like on the street, you know, being burned on the burning guards floating down the Ganges. And one day, I, will, I still remember that I was going in a very, very narrow 
little lane in Varanasi with my friend, you know, and suddenly we heard little bells, clink, 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 clink. And then like somebody came by with a stretcher with a corpse on it, like just like that, so close by my face, you know. It was kind of awesome, you know. They are not making a big deal out of that. And that's, that's really wonderful. I, lo I love that. I found that very inspiring. And uh, because if you are really turning towards what we consider to be difficult, we know what to do. Maybe just the next step, but we know what to do next, you know. But if we don't turn towards it, we don't know what to do. And we're just up there in our head, worrying, worrying, doubting, thinking. And it doesn't work. So, you know, dropping in those subjects for frequent recollection shows us where we are stuck, you know. Shows us where the grasping is really strong. And then through, you know, doing this practice on a regular basis and also, of course, you know, looking at impermanence also in other ways, our minds get increasingly sensitized to the way things truly are. You know, our capacity to be affected by life, to allow life to speak for itself, that increases. You know, it's like a gradual refinement of the mind. And then through that gradual refinement of the mind, the way we are looking for happiness changes. You know, then we know buying all of those things isn't really doing the trick. So, you know, this refinement of the mind, the sensitizing of the mind through training the mind to look at things it usually does not look at. Slowly but surely, you know, opens up a whole new way of looking at life, a whole new way of looking of, at our experience. And uh, we will be changed by that. And there will, you know, wisdom and compassion will flower in us, in our hearts and in our minds. Because, you know, the human existence, the human birth is a very complex uh, affair. And uh, in some ways, you know, we are less fortunate than animals. Because in some ways we are much more vulnerable. Because, you know, animals don't know about the five subjects of frequent recollection. They just go about their business and you know, of collecting acorns or, or whatever they are doing, you know. They are not thinking, oh God, I could die tomorrow. I mean, they are, you know, they are constantly vigilant looking for predators or something, but they are not kind of worrying about the five subjects of frequent recollection. So in some ways, you know, we are very vulnerable if you compare a human being with an alligator or a turtle, you know. Alligator is a very aggressive way of uh, dealing with problems and, and the turtle is just going to go into her shell, you know, and is a more passive way of dealing, of not dealing with a lot of things. And we human beings, we are vulnerable in, in you can say, three ways. You know, physically, our babies, you know, when they are born, they are unable to look after themselves for many years. There's no other animal out there where the babies are so long dependent on the parents. 
and you know all of the trauma which can be inflicted on, on a baby through not looking after it well. There's no other animal which has all of those dangers built in. And then, uh, you know, the mental dukkha we can experience, you know, the paranoias and obsessions and mental illnesses, you know, which some people can um, have, you know, they are also, I don't think the animal kingdom has to deal with that. And then also, you know, being conscious of the implication of old age sickness and death, for example, knowing that we one day we will die. And knowing, for example, at the moment, you know, what's going on with climate change, you know, knowing that we as a whole, you know, seven plus billion people have gotten ourselves into a quite narrow corridor, you know, and uh, it's not clear how we're going to make that next shift. So animals don't have to worry about those things. They are not aware of it. And so we, there's an incredible vulnerability in the human condition in build, but that very vulnerability, you know, if we can accept it and turn towards it, it can become our sharpening stones, you know, for adaptation, to adapt to the true things really are. Because we have that sensitivity that we can actually train our minds into perceiving things which are hidden, you know, from plain view, and we have to know how to look. So in the long run, you know, our vulnerability is an evolutionary advantage because there's no other animal, you know, which can go that high to the top of the Mount Everest, that deep, 10,000 meters deep into the trenches, you know, of the oceans, living, you know, from the North Pole to the tropics, you know, we can do, we can go even to the moon or living in outer space, you know, for on a space station for a year even or so. So there's many, many uh, feats, you know, we have been able to do as human beings because if we use our vulnerability, we can learn what works and what doesn't work and then we can adapt to a degree no other animal, at least, you know, animal we can see with the eye. Can, can do that. So that sensitivity, you know, we have is, is amazing. And at the same time, it, it doesn't allow us to rest. You know, there's a constant searching, constant searching for some ultimate security. And, you know, and that at one point, it takes us into the spiritual practice. Once we have exhausted, you know, everything out there, we start to see it. it's not working that way. There's something else. There's something else. And then we come to the practice. And, uh, and what we understand, I think, is more and more is if we really allow this vulnerability to do its job, it will lead us to invulnerability, which is, you know, the Buddhist way of saying that is enlightenment. Because the craving and the grasping to wrong information is fully released. And then what's left is just the way things are. So, 
So we need to be 100% vulnerable to reality in order to arrive at invulnerability. It's, it's a paradox, really. And the spiritual practice often, you know, is very paradoxical. You know, to have all of your wishes fulfilled, you just need to let go of wanting. This is a paradox, but it makes total sense, isn't it? So only, you know, through really fully embracing where we are, which we are human beings right now, by fully embracing the human condition, can we let go of delusion? Because we are here now and we have to use what we have got. You know, whatever experience arises, any experience displays the Dhamma, any phenomenon displays the Dhamma because they are all impermanent, they are all unsatisfactory and they are all empty of a self. So, you know, and, and this vulnerability to this truth and the understanding of it, they go together. You have to really, you know, get yourself wet. You have to really go into it. And uh, you know that reminds me of a very beautiful uh, fact. You know the way the word blessure in French that means wound is is coming from the same uh, root as the word blessing. You know because it's through this what we as an ego consider a wounding is that reality can enter into our lives. You know, that's why quite often, you know, when people have a big loss, that kicks them onto the path, you know, often. With me, it was the case. It was when my mother died very suddenly, when I was 28, very unexpectedly, you know, I've, I felt like I'm ready for something because I can't make sense of all of this anymore. And then it was that, that deep suffering, you know, and, and grief, which actually allowed a crack in my armor, you know, of trying to have my life in a way I want it to be. And then the light of the Dhamma came through because then I met my first teacher and I could really receive what he gave, you know, because I, I had this crack in my defense structure and the light came in, you know. Yeah, that was that was uh, a very powerful um, experience, you know. Because usually people who are the most defended, you know, are people who who have a lot of suffering, you know. People who are like addicted to drugs, people who are addicted to alcohol, or people, you know, who very act out their aggression, and. Uh, or people with, you know, paranoias and, and different mental illnesses. You know, there's a lot of defense going on and uh, a lot of resistance, you know. And it doesn't work because it completely isolates us from life. It isolates us from 
others it isolates us even from our own experience and then you know the whole potential of the human experience which the buddha you know has said is the best rebirth you know to have the human birth where there is like a good mix between pleasure and pain so that we can learn because in other realms there's too much pain and in other realms there's too much uh, happiness you know there's no incentive for learning so you're really fully embracing the human condition because you know awakening it doesn't solve necessarily all of our problems we still get old we'll get sick and die and we lose things and you know there will be the washing machine will break down and all other things will still happen you know but we can deal with it from a different place you know from a place of of like a greater heart and mind opening you know and not taking it also personal you know the so for example with the covid right now you know there is quite a few people who are completely wedded to this conspiracy theories you know that some people have made this virus in a lab and then they have kind of uh, spread it around the world because of this and that and you know maybe it's true or not but does it help us you know thinking in that way thinking of ourselves as victims it doesn't really but rather seeing it as yeah you know there's a, a whole lot of unenlightened being on this planet and things happen of course you know how could it be otherwise we do what we can and then we have to just let go and then you know we be able much more to really contribute whatever is our calling inside of this because it comes from a place of rootedness and groundedness in what is possible you know in samsara because it cannot be fixed it's like a house you know if you renovate a house you start on one end and if you finish at the other end it already breaks down again it's like that that doesn't mean that we don't renovate the house of course we need to but it's a different way of going at it you know and uh, you know opening helps us to create this resiliency of spirit you know which maybe in the brahma viharas it called that upeka equanimity or a sense of perspective you know by opening to all kinds manners of things we don't like like old age sickness and death and washing machine breaking down and everything in between so this uh, you know constant learning from life however it displays itself in our situation and to not turn away from it because then we'll know what is the next step what can i do here and sometimes the right thing is not to do anything
but it's always really very important to have like the patience, you know, to to look inside how you are meeting this and to see, you know, what comes forth as the right action. And and we know that in our hearts, you know, what's right. It feels just, it feels right. It feels like, you know, congruent with where we are in, in life right now. And there's a huge diversity, you know, so many different ways. But if somebody really comes from that place, you know, of being really coming from their inner truth, those, you know, people can have very powerful effect in the world. Like some, you know, of the great teachers and social activists like Martin Luther King and uh, Gandhi and many others, you know, they have that uh, power which comes from allowing themselves to really go through the process of being changed by reality. Because they, for some reason, you know, they have either voluntarily or involuntarily been roped into it by, by the universe or something, you know. Because they can't, they could do it. They could take on a huge lot of hardship, emotional hardship. And then they were like, they became like diamonds, you know, because of that rumbling and grumbling and not stopping, not turning away. And I think, you know, for us, we can just use the good old five subjects of frequent recollections, you know, which have been tested since hundreds of years and just start with that. Because, you know, generally we can think about meditation is about, is about either, you know, we think about meditation as gaining something or we think about meditation as uh, letting go of something. And I think the second one is better. We are not gaining anything, but we are letting go of a lot of extra luggage, you know, which we can call ignorance or greed, hatred and delusion or the four vipalasa. This is an extra luggage which the meditation helps us to let that go through insight. And it reminds me of this beautiful um, story about Michelangelo, you know, who was a very famous Italian sculptor. And he was saying, you know, when he would look at an uncut stone, he already see the beautiful sculpture in the stone and he just had to remove the excess stone and then here it was. And that's what our practice is all like, also like that, you know. We have to just, I mean, it, 
is not just because it's really not easy work, it's very complex. But yeah, we have very good instructions, you know, to remove this extra luggage which we have accumulated over lifetimes, our habitual ways of uh, projecting. So that's why, you know, meditation is much more about letting go. It's not about gaining. Because the awareness, the capacity for awareness is already always here. That's the refuge in Buddha. So seeing, you know, through this net of delusions, seeing beyond hopes and fears, which are all always, you know, connected with our egos, into a much bigger picture. And then allowing that, you know, to change us. And those five subjects, you know, they are a way for you to maybe print them out and put them if you have a shrine or if you have a certain place where you do your practice, put them there, put them on the wall or wherever, you know, however, however you can do this in your home. And as a reminder, you know. And then sometimes, you know, when the going gets tough and the washing machine breaks down and you feel upset, you just go to the, read that paper and then you think, oh God, it's a small deal compared with everything else what's happening. It can really help us, you know, to have more ease in our lives. This is paradoxical, really. So I think that's what I wanted to share with you today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.